All right, Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to disagree with, um, with Dan. Um, this is not the end of a section in Mark. This is a beginning of a new section in Mark, and we're going to begin it, and then we're going to turn around and stop it and wait and come back to it later. Um, so, I, to Dan's credit, like he's, he's not been part of our, he's working with the teens, right? But um, we just finished chapter 13, which was the finish of an extended teaching of Jesus about the end times, and we have a new setting. We were really focused on the temple and all that was going on in chapter 11, 12, and 13 in Jesus' being challenged by the religious leaders in the temple, and now uh, we are rapidly moving towards his crucifixion. This is the beginning of his ab- abandonment. It starts here in, in verse, verses 10 and 11, arguably even in verse 1. So um, let's, let's read the text, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive, dive into our study of it. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth, deceptively, and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she, blo- she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Let her be. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whoever the go- wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, to literally to hand him over. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right. Um, as we get started here, I want to just kind of start with a, a little bit of a, a question that might help us move our minds in the direction of some of the themes that are raised here in this passage. I want to ask you if you've ever been through the experience of having something appraised. Have you ever had an, an appraisal done. Um, what kinds of things do we have appraised, right? We have homes appraised. Um, we have collectibles appraised. You know, someday I'm going to have all my baseball cards that I collected when I was a, a kid. I'm going to have those appraised, right? Um, someday. <laughs> um, we, uh, we have perhaps, you know, some jewelry that we inherit appraised to, to find out what its value is. Um, Kristen and I have uh, a good friend. Um, they they were they were they lived in China with us, and they were a big part of our community when we were there. Um, Susan Park 
uh, is her name, uh, Brian and Susan. They had lived in California previously, and she had uh, she had worked as a uh, commercial real estate appraiser in Los Angeles. And if I ever need to know what a commodity is worth, I message Susan because she is very good at giving me an assessment of what something's value is. Um, and I, I, I mean, I'm not looking at commercial properties in LA, but uh, it, it's just that capacity that she has. She has this skill and ability to, to get close to what something really is worth, right? Appraising the value of things. Um, we're looking for a car right now. And I feel like, like the first task in trying to buy a car is actually understand how much are these cars generally worth? Before I start trying to negotiate with somebody about what I'm willing to pay, I, I, I want to know, like, what is its real market value, right? Um, so that's, that's what we're doing when we uh, get into appraising. But, but that's just kind of like saying superficially, like, what's appraising about? But why do we have things appraised? Like, what's our reason to have appraisal stuff? Know the value? To know the value. Insurance. Okay, perhaps for insurance. To know whether you want to keep it or not. Yeah, good. To support a transaction. Okay, to support a transaction, in, in one sense, I mean, it can go both directions, but like, we're asking like, is my investment worth it? Or how much worth do I have? Like, is it worth investing in this? Or am I getting all that I have in it out of it? Either direction, whether I'm selling or buying. We're, we're asking this question personally. <laughs> like, how is this going to impact my financial outlook? That's what we're doing when we appraise things. <coughs> I'm not actually concerned about how much 2015 Honda Odysseys cost. Like, I don't, I don't really care about Honda Odysseys as Honda Odysseys. I care about my money and how much I'm going to spend on that Honda Odyssey. You, you see what I mean? Like, I have no affection for that object itself. I care about our family's financial situation, right? Um, and that's what we're doing when we're appraising things. We're asking, is my investment worth it? And that is very much what is happening in this story with this woman and her appraisal of the value of Jesus. Um, there are so many things we can observe about this passage, and I'm afraid that our time together is too short and that my thoughts are a little bit too scattered. Um, so I'm going to, at times, just kind of randomly mention some observations, and I'll let you do with them what you want. One of the things that's going on in this passage that we'll see, uh, let, me, let me try and explain it this way. So you have this uh, strange graph in front of you, like, is this some kind of statistics chart or something? No, that's a picture of a bookshelf. Can't you tell? Um, the L's on the sides, those L's are, are bookends, okay? And there's three books in the middle. Um, so you have bookend one on one side, bookend two on the end, and then you have three books in the middle. And that's the structure of this passage. We've been referring to these as sandwiches, right, in the past. But notice real quickly with me the structure of this passage. Look at verse 1. And verse 2, we have this introduction about how the religious leaders are trying to arrest Jesus, right? And then if you jumped to verse 10, 
it would actually feel, read very naturally if there was no verse 3 through 9, right? If you just said, oh, they didn't want to do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people in verse 2, and then you went on in verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, he went to the chief priests in order to betray him. That's a pretty natural flow, isn't it? Like, why do we need verses 3 through 9? Well, we, we need them very badly. But what Mark is doing is he's placing you know, this sandwiching kind of structure that he does so often. And here I'm just referring to, you know, same idea, just bookends. So you have the first bookend is the chief priest trying to arrest Jesus, the end bookend being Judas trying to betray Jesus, and then you have this woman's act in the middle. And I've got three books for that woman's act because she performs this act in verse 3, where she anoints Jesus. Then you have verses 4 through 5, some disciples, not named in, in Mark's gospel, some disciples who discuss it and have a problem with it. And then verses 6 through 9, you have Jesus' assessment. And, and you can see even in the size of the books there, 2, 3, and 4, uh, book number 2 there, the woman's act, is very small. It's, it's just one sentence in the text. She, she does this thing. Then there's more time even given to the, the, some of the disciples' response in book two there, um, the, the, the third section. And then you have this extended discussion that Jesus has about what she has done. And he spends a lot of time talking about what she's done. So um, there's a little bit of a picture of the structure that we're going to go through. And one of the observations about this that's very interesting is... Um, in, in Middle Eastern culture, uh, a, a, an individual's relationship was very much defining of their identity in ways that it's not as strong in Western culture today. Um, who I am in Western culture is much more defined individualistically based on what I do, um, based on what I have, based on things I've accomplished, that kind of thing. But in, in Middle Eastern culture today and back then, your identity was very much attached to who you were connected with. And so there's one of the categories of cultures in the world today is um, insider-outsider kinds of cultures, where your, your insideness to a culture actually really, um, it, it accrues to you a certain amount of status and significance that you don't have if you're an outsider. So when you go... Um, when you go shopping in an insider-outsider culture, there's the insider price and there's the outsider price. And we as Americans say, are you kidding? That's unjust and unfair, right? But I mean, we know about this as well. Like, I mean, I, don't, I trust you don't sell a used car to a family member for the same price that you would sell it to a stranger, right? Um, so we have some parallels in our, in our culture as well. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on how close you are with your family, right? Um, so, insider-outsider culture is very much in play in this passage. Um, who are the insiders and who are the outsiders? Uh, Judas should be an insider, right? I mean, it's clearly stated in verse 10, he was one of the 12, emphasizing the significance of his betrayal, right? So, he's an insider who acts like an outsider. And what about this woman? Who is this woman who performs this extravagant act of worship? Well, if you check your cross references and go to John's gospel, you might come up with a name, a famous name, 
of a woman in the Gospels. I'm not going to name her name because Mark doesn't name her name. And I think that's part of what he's doing here. She's, she's an outsider to the dining moment there at Simon the leper's house. She's not sitting at the table with the men having this conversation. She comes in ab- abruptly, and, and she doesn't have status. She's an outsider, and yet she behaves like the best of insiders in this particular story. The insiders, the disciples, wrongly interpret her behavior, and they wrongly assess the value of what she does. They have a really bad knack for appraising the worth of things in this moment. Um, and so that insider-outsider thing is, is happening here. Um, man, there's so, much, there's so much for us to talk about, and uh, we're going to run out of time fast. Um, so remember, uh, when, when Bill was working through chapter 13 with us, that um, in this, that was the last section, the last core section of Jesus' teaching. And what was he teaching us about in chapter 13? He was talking, teaching about the end times. And what was kind of the main thing that we were supposed to take away from that? Be prepared. Be prepared, right. Don't be asleep. Wake up. Be ready. Don't be surprised by this. Um, that kind of preparation kind of language. And, and, and when Jesus was doing that, Bill pointed out that there was a, a near and a farness, a nearness and a farness to that. Tribulations are coming close in time historically and long in the future as well. And so here we're looking at the near coming of some of the tribulations, Jesus's in particular, right? Because chapter 14 starts the passion. It starts the move towards his crucifixion, the abandonment of all of his friends and and disciples. This is the beginning of all of that. So Jesus has just taught on that, preparing them, and it seems like nobody gets it, except for some unnamed woman. Um, also notice in verse 1 that this is at the beginning of the observance of the Passover. And the description that's given is, is twofold. It's two days until the Passover, which sometimes that language actually means like next day. Um, so it's not, it's not like... the, the, the well, I'll just leave that detail for, for later. Um, so the Passover is very close, and it describes you know, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these are two terms that we can just be so familiar with, so breeze past, that we don't really reflect on the significance of them. Um, our holiday calendars, as Americans, revolve around Christmas and Easter, Right? But our, our new year doesn't start at Christmas or Easter. But for, for the, the, the Jewish people, the beginning of the year was Passover. It was the start of the calendar. And we remember where that came from, right? Coming out of Egypt, God told Moses, today your calendar starts. It's like, it's like it starts new. Here's your new year and your new life. Good. And so you have this Passover. And what was the Passover? The Passover was the protection of the people of Israel from the death of their firstborn child. Right? That's what the Passover was. It was 
It was actually, it gets into this valuation discussion, this appraisal discussion. Um, how much does your sin cost you is kind of in play. It cost Egypt the death of their firstborn. Every firstborn in Egypt was taken. And coming out of Egypt, God actually requires payment for the firstborn children of Israel. You remember in the law, when the law is given, they actually have to pay a price, a specific amount for the redemption of every firstborn in Israel. And, and the Passover is all pointing toward that, that, that picture of redemption, right? And what about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? So as they prepare to go out of Egypt, they can't put any yeast in their bread because they have to be ready to fly in escape, in rescue, in salvation from their, their bondage in, in Egypt. And those metaphors are right there. This metaphor of redemption, rescue, salvation, all of that is right there in this moment at the beginning of this story. And do the religious leaders of their day get it? What are they concerned about at the Feast of the Passover? What are they concerned about at the moment of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? They're concerned about popularity with the people. They're concerned about this is going to cause trouble if we take this action against Jesus. So how well are they preparing themselves for the spiritual significance of the Passover and the Unleavened Bread? Not very well at all. So we're already leaning in here into bookend number one. Um, if you look at the, the, the picture of the bookshelf, you can, you can think about it like um, bookend number one listed as, this is kind of confusing for there to be two different numbering systems, one, two, three, four, five and on the bookshelf, and then bookend one and bookend two, and I'm sorry, that's kind of, kind of strange, but you'll, 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 you'll follow along, I trust. Um, but if you look at, like, bookend one is a negative example of evaluation of Jesus, right? Book, book number two, listed as number three there on the bookshelf, the book in the middle, again, is a negative evaluation, assessment of the value of Jesus. And then bookend number two, the, the last bookend there, listed as number five. So you have kind of negative, positive, negative, positive, negative going through in the, in the flow here. So we start here with the religious leaders seeking to arrest Jesus. Um, um, sorry, uh, my thoughts are too scattered this morning. Um, let, me, let me step back and ask kind of uh, this, this question. When you think about this passage, um, this is a, a question that helped me as I was studying it. Um, trying to identify what the focus of this passage is. When you think about this passage, would you say, um, so I'm just going to say focus. What's the focus of this passage? I'm going to give you three options. Would you say the focus of this passage is on the, um, I, I'm, I'm just going to say it like this, the value of Jesus, um, the value of his teaching, the value of his mission, the value of his person, would you say that the focus of this passage is on the value of Jesus? That's, that's one option. Um, or perhaps would you say, is it on the worship of 
this woman, and that I know that's bad grammar. Um, I mean, this woman's worship, worship, not worshiping that woman. This woman's worship of Jesus. Would you say the focus is on the value of Jesus, on the worship of this woman, this woman's worship? Or would you say the focus is on, and this is kind of a longer one to, to write, but like this woman's, let's call it discernment here. On her discernment that led her to value Jesus in a certain way, so that she worshipped him. I know it's kind of a it's kind of an abstract question, but when we look at this passage, all of these themes are at play. Clearly, there's a valuing of Jesus at play here. This woman's worship is at the center of this passage. You could actually say all three of these are at the center. And my question is like, what, what, what is Mark really focusing on in this particular text? Um, and so as we walk through, I trust that we'll see the answer to this question kind of resolved for us. Um, I think one of the primary questions that we have to answer as... Um, as Bill and Jeff and I were discussing this passage two weeks ago, um, I did not initially have eyes to really see upon my first reading of the passage and studying of the passage. I didn't really see how important this question is. That is, what provoked this woman to perform such an extravagant act of worship? What was it that drove her to do that? Um, in my previous readings of this passage and understanding of it, I always just assumed that maybe Jesus imported more meaning into what she did than she even knew. Like she was just, she was just extravagantly worshiping Jesus, but not really understanding what she was doing. Um, that's kind of how I had understood it previously. But I think there's some clues in the passage that indicate that's not really a fair understanding of things. Um, all right. So we've really kind of already looked at bookend number one and how the religious leaders are seeking to arrest Jesus and how that sets things up in contrast to what's going to happen here. Let's look at book number one, um, point number two in the outline, this woman's extravagant act of worship. Let's just look at this quickly. It's actually very described very quickly in the passage. Strangely enough, this happens at Simon the leper's house. We don't know for sure who Simon the leper was. Some people have supposed that maybe Simon the leper was Mary and Martha's father, um, which is described you know, in, in Luke chapter 12 is where we might see a parallel there. But we don't have Simon the leper even listed there in, in Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 12. So Simon the leper is named. This woman is not named. Um, I mean, that's just incredible that um, this woman is going to be remembered wherever the gospel is shared. And we aren't even given her name in Mark's gospel. Um, so she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. How many of you have one of those at home? <laughs> alabaster? Nope, I don't have an alabaster flask. Pure nard? I don't have that either. So the idea is that this is a fragrant um, kind of perfuming ointment that comes from a plant called nard in India. Okay? 
And what is 300 denarii? You have 300 denarii in your pocket or in your um, Venmo account right now or in your bank account right now, right? No, 300 denarii, roughly translated, is in the vicinity of one year's wage for an average laborer at that time. A year's wage is a significant amount. I don't know what that is for you, but we can do an awful lot with one year's wage, right? Regardless of, of what our individual family economies are, one year's wage. She comes and pours out. So she breaks the jar in such a way that it is no longer usable. It's a complete act of devotion. It wasn't a, let's take the lid off and measure out a, you know, a, a reasonable portion. Instead, she, she gave everything here in, in this moment. Um, her act of devotion is, the, the extravagance of the act of devotion is highlighted by the response that comes later, right? Um, there is something uncomfortable that we all experience when we see somebody who's a little bit too radical in their devotion to something, right? And that's, that's the moment that happens right here. Everybody in the room except for Jesus is uncomfortable with what this woman has done because of its degree of extravagance, um, because of how costly what she did was. But it's very interesting to me that, you know, when you look at the, the weight of this passage, like it's only even half of verse 3 that even describes what she does. Um, so there's just, Mark just barely gives us any attention to it. Um, she anoints his head with oil. He doesn't, e- he doesn't even describe as much as John does, you know, where this woman goes on and anoints his feet and washes his feet with her hair, I think, being the same, being the same story. So going on then to book number two, we encounter the disciples' appraisal of the woman's act. And this is really more than just one disciple, right? We don't know for sure who and how many, but it says some who were there said to themselves indignantly, right? So some of the disciples, uh, John does tell us that Judas was one of those disciples who was thinking this way. John does also tell us that Judas was a thief, and he held the purse for the disciples, and he managed the the finances. Um, But Mark doesn't give us those details. But the disciples here, they appraise this woman's act as scandalous. In fact, as a scandalous waste. And they give her what can only be referred to as a parental rebuke. You, you see, they said some of these things in their head. We're not exactly sure how much they said in their head and how much they said out loud. Because they thought to themselves, this money could have been given to the poor. And then Jesus interacts with that. I think somebody said it at some point. Many of them were probably thinking it, and somebody came out and said it. But what they very clearly did, you see at the ver- end of verse 5, is it says, they scolded her. Um, they gave her a very strong rebuke here at this point. The woman's worship was just too costly. It was just too radical. It was too religious. It was too fanatical. And it made them uncomfortable. So their appraisal of the woman's act was, 
waste. And so then we come to book number three here, Jesus' defense and description of what this woman did. Here in verses six through nine, we, we hear what Jesus thinks about what she has done. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And then notice what gets repeated through this entire section. Do you see what Jesus does here? Um, you, might, you might highlight uh, in your Bible, she has done a beautiful thing to me. You see that? She has done. He really zeroes in and focuses on her act there. And then he gives an argument about the, the poor. Then notice in verse 8, she has done, again, he repeats, she's done what she could, which is a very interesting statement. She has done what she's able to. And then, again, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And we'll come to the meaning of that in a moment. And then in verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, <coughs> excuse me, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So there's this drumbeat in these um, four verses, this drumbeat of Jesus emphasizing her actions, what she has done. She's done a beautiful thing. She's done what she could. She has prepared my body for burial. What she has done will be proclaimed throughout the world when the gospel is proclaimed. Um, Jesus really zeroes in on this woman's actions. So I think it's worth us giving attention to each of these, looking at what uh, each of them mean in their significance. First of all, um, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. So notice the contrast. The disciples say this is a waste. And Jesus says this is a beautiful thing. At this point, what's being appraised is the woman's act, right? But this gets a little confusing. Jesus is saying, you disciples wrongly value what this woman just did. I'm going to tell you that it's beautiful. So think about the appraisal process. Um, this might not be the best example for the room. There's not a bunch of young athlete teenagers who are all geeked about the NFL draft or the Major League Baseball draft in the room here today, right? But you can understand that when a major league team faces the opportunity to get new talent from college or wherever, they're trying to get the most for their money when they draft new players, right? And you know how ugly it gets when the team makes a bad choice, right? We don't think of the historic Detroit Lions as doing a good job in the draft. It gets ugly at draft time. And the Lions fans let everybody know about how terrible our draft picks have been historically, you know, going, going back years now. Things are getting better, and we kind of like it, right? Um, but when, when something is undervalued or when something is overvalued, we look at that as being unattractive, right? In this moment, the disciples are saying, you have way, way overvalued you know, this act of worshiping Jesus in this moment. And Jesus is saying, no, there's, 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 there's one thing in this room that's been undervalued. There's one person in this room that's been undervalued. And it is he himself. So when this woman uh, did this beautiful thing, her act was beautiful because 
her appraisal was correct and accurate. What she did, what she did was rightly valuing Jesus in this moment, while everyone else undervalued him in that room. Notice also how Jesus describes what this woman did. Notice what what words he uses. If it was me describing what she did, I might say, she has done a beautiful thing for him. For him. But Jesus really personalizes it. And he says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. When you think about your relationship to Jesus and how you value and assess him, I would, I would expect that you would kind of think similar to, me, similar to me. Like, I think of myself as doing some things for God, for Jesus. But I don't think of him as an object to whom I do things, as a person to whom I interact with on that level. Do you, do you, do you see the distinction there? Obviously, we don't interact with our Lord in a face-to-face way like this woman was in this moment. But I think that there's something very significant here that she is valuing him as an individual, as a person. She has done these things to him. And there's an invitation for us to follow our example here. So we see here that this woman had a capacity to appraise the value of Jesus that exceeded everybody else in the room. But notice as well in verse 7 that her discernment and her appraisal assessment went beyond that. She was, she was right in discerning, the prior, discerning priorities here in this moment. And we get into this discussion of the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. And this can be an uncomfortable discussion here. What is Jesus doing? Is he looking down on the poor? Um, really what Jesus is doing is he's, He's essentially saying that you need to follow the greatest command, not just the second command. You you see what I mean? The second command was, you know, do to your neighbor as you do to yourself. And Jesus is saying, I'm I'm, I'm not just functioning on the neighbor level, right? He's prioritizing himself as, um, you know, love God comes first. And he's he's saying here, this, this kind of affection, this woman is setting toward me and valuing me in this way. Is appropriate, um, and it meets that first command kind of requirement. Um, Jesus is placing himself over the poor, above the second greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he's demonstrating that this woman had the kind of discernment that so many of us struggle with. Like, look at the things that you've been wrapped up in this week. Look at the cares that you've been concerned about in this week. The things you've fixed your mind on that are a weight on your chest. That you're burdened that I have to do these things. Think about what those things were for you this week. And and ask yourself how well you reflect the kind of prioritization of the values of things in this world like this woman has in this moment. She understood what mattered most in that moment. And she invites us by her example to do the same. So she has this discernment of priority. She also has, in verse 8, a discernment about her own limits and her opportunity. See how Jesus says it? 
She's done what she was able to. She's done what she could. So um, all of this is driving to the final point that she actually understood that Jesus was being prepared for burial. Um, And we're going to get there in just a second. But she recognized that what the Lord was about to do wasn't something that she could do. She recognized that the work he was about wasn't anything she could do. Peter is busy trying to protect the Lord from, you know, from experiencing the fate that he's going to intentionally, right? And he's trying to do things, you know, in his own strength and power. What is this woman doing? She's doing what she can do. Recognizing the limitations that she said, I I can't understand why he's doing this. She's not rebuking the Lord for trying to do this. And she takes the opportunity that she has in front of her. She did with what was within her limited power and ability. It's interesting to me to see um, how this woman here is similar to the woman who sacrificed all that she had with two pennies at the temp- temple at the end of verse, or chapter 12. And now this woman sacrifices a year's wage. And that whole discussion of value is fascinating, right? Two pennies, all that she had. A year's wage is worth of, of perfume and this precious, extravagant gift given to Jesus. Uh, and, and both of them really communicate the same kind of message. And then I think coming to, uh, it says, letter D there says verse 8, it's actually, I'm sorry, it says verse 9, it's actually verse 8. Um, she discerned the, the teaching and mission of our Lord, of Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Mark is, is telling us here that, Jesus is telling us here, the significance of what she's done. You could make an argument from these words here that she didn't necessarily understand that entirely. But if you go to John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, Jesus actually goes further and he says, she has been saving this ointment for my burial. And now she has given it in this moment. This woman's act was not um, uninformed. It wasn't just a, a spur of the moment, hey, you know, I think I should do this without premeditation. Uh, this woman had listened to the teaching of Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus plainly told him, told them that he was going to die. The Son of Man must be turned over to the chief priests, and he will die, and he will be buried, and he will rise again. She had heard that. He says it again in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. He says it again in chapter 10, right? Jesus was plainly teaching these things. And this woman understood them. This woman appears to be the first person who gets it, who gets what Jesus was teaching throughout all of these moments. The Christ must suffer and die to give himself as a ransom. And so her appraised valuing of Jesus here fueled her worship. And Jesus blesses her in verse 9 for that, right? In verse 9, Jesus tells us kind of enigmatically that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, this woman's story is going to be told. And, I mean, I don't think we should take that in its most literal form that, like, every time somebody goes and shares the gospel, like, they're using this specific story every time. That's not what it means, right? But you can't 
you can't go around the world without finding Bibles that contain this story in it. I think that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Uh, This unnamed woman here in Mark's account is given this blessing of uh, showing us the way of properly valuing Jesus in such a way that we join her in worshiping him. And then we come to the conclusion, Judas's pursuit of a betrayal opportunity here that really launches Jesus' complete abandonment. Uh, The insiders are acting like outsiders, and this woman, this outsider, is acting as if she has the best of inside insight. I think as we step away from this passage, the, the question that I would really like for you to reflect on is um, thinking about your own appraisal of the value of Jesus as a person, his teaching, and his mission. Some people will think in times of suffering, or in considering the cost of discipleship, that their devotion to Christ is wasteful, like the disciples assessed this woman's act of devotion. The reality is that most believers are going to experience times in their lives where they wonder, is it worth it? And a true disciple, like this woman, unnamed here, will see the value of all the costs that we embrace for Christ. And so we'll be driven to worship the Lord like she did. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this woman's example, and I pray that you would help us to to heed it, uh, to not just um, allow the nouns and verbs of this passage to come in our, our brains and then leave, but let them rest on our hearts as we consider your, your value, Lord, um, the, the worth of your person, the worth of your sacrifice, uh, the worth of the redemption that you bought for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.